Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today... The U.S. drops a bomb in Afghanistan and announces that a strike in Syria mistakenly killed 18 Allied troops. How do we reconcile all this military action with America first? And historians had a story of the American right. It failed to predict the election of President Trump. One historian's reckoning with what they got wrong. It's Friday, April 14th. We are so proud of our military, and it was another successful event. Did you authorize it, sir? Uh, everybody knows exactly what happened, so... And what I do is I authorize my military. We have the greatest military in the world, and they've done a job as usual. So we have given them total authorization, and that's what they're doing. And frankly, that's why they've been so successful lately. Lately, the United States military has been unexpectedly active overseas. I called up our Pentagon reporter, Helene Cooper. Helene... I realize that I'm basically always calling you when you're in the middle of a breaking story, so thank you for coming on. For some reason, you don't seem interested in talking to me when I'm just sitting around <laughs> doodling, but there you have I don't, it. I don't, I don't think you ever do sit around doodling. Um, Helene, can you tell us what happened in Afghanistan on Thursday? Well, uh, the U.S. military dropped what is, and believe it or not, they actually call this the mother of all bombs. It's wow. actually, has uh, got the the name for it is a massive ordnance air blast. But there is no way that you know with the with initials of M O A B, the Moab, that the Air Force wasn't going to you know change the <laughs> come up with their own. To, yeah, mother of all bombs. It's a really big, huge bomb. It's the largest non-nuclear conventional bomb that we have is more than 20,000 pounds wow. of high explosives. And it's so big and heavy, for want of a better word, that you've got to drop it out of the rear of a cargo plane, the kind of planes that, you know, not only do transports, but move tanks and that kind of stuff across the ocean. So it's dropped not from a B-2 bomber or something like that, but actually from uh, an MC-130 cargo plane, those massive planes that if you've ever been at a military base, looks like they can barely get into the air when right. you see them taking off. So for the Trump administration, why this particular target at this particular moment? That's a really good question, and I don't know the I'm still trying to figure mm -hmm. out the answer to it. The military reason, which we've already been given, is because they were in tunnels, the opportunity was there, so we took it. But you are seeing a more assertive Pentagon now that President mm -hmm. Trump is in office with the Obama administration. There were long processes for every type of military action, and the Obama White House wanted mm -hmm. to discuss it and wanted to talk about 
about it. And Trump has already indicated that he's willing to give the military a lot more leeway. And so it's possible that this is an example of them taking it. But I just don't know. It's too early right now to make that definitive assertion. So my first reaction to hearing about this bomb going off in Afghanistan is, I didn't know we were dropping bombs in Afghanistan now because we've had Syria. We are dealing with North Korea, Russia, and all of this from a White House that until basically a week ago seemed to have sworn off military entanglements and kind of fight picking with foreign countries, said it wanted to focus on domestic affairs. So it's, it feels hard to make sense of it, exactly what's going on. Well, the Afghan war is, is, even though we declared the end of combat, it never ended. Mm. Uh, we still have American troops there. And we've certainly been, the war against the Islamic State is something that we've been launching in other countries as well. And we've done strikes against al-Qaeda and other Islamic extremist groups in Yemen and Libya. So this is something that, you know, has never really gone away. Mm-hmm. I mean, you cover the Pentagon, so you've got your fingers on all of these different military activities. Is there a relationship between between everything we've seen in just the past couple of weeks? That is the obvious question, and I don't know the answer to that. I ask, I'm I'm struggling with that as Hmm. well, and I don't want to jump to any conclusions. It's really easy to look at what's happening, and we have a new president, and to say this is because we have a president who's basically going to step aside and let the military uh, lead the way. And if you've got the military leading the way, this is what the military does. This is how the military responds to crises and to problems. I think it may be a little too early to say that, but I certainly think that we should all be asking the question that you're asking as we report these. So, Helene, you've also been reporting on another American, in this case, American-led airstrike, and this one was in Syria. Yeah, this is a strike that took place on Tuesday. Tuesday. They only just told us about it today. And I want to get to that. And and it's and the results there were tragic. So what happened and why are we just finding out about it? Um, this was an airstrike by the American-led coalition that's fighting the Islamic State. And they say that it was coordinates that were mistakenly called in. There are people on the ground, the Syrian, uh, the SDF, Syrian Defense Forces. Mm-hmm. These are allied with the United States in the war against the Islamic State. And what looks like happened is that they called in airstrikes, but whoever called them in gave the wrong coordinates. And so Mm. as a result, the SDF forces were hit. Some 18 SDF fighters were killed. This is the third time in a month that U.S.-led airstrikes may have killed civilians or our allies. Why does that seem to keep happening? The casualty number has certainly gone up in the last few months. The Pentagon will tell you that the reason is because fighting is intensifying. Mm -hmm. The campaign to take Mosul, which is an urban center, has just uh, really gotten going in a real way. They're moving in on West Mosul now. They've already Iraq, taken right? back in Iraq. They've already taken East Mosul, which was not as populated, but now West Mosul is an urban center. There's an old city. ISIS is dug in. There are a lot of people there. The Iraqi government told civilians there to harbor in place instead of fleeing. Right. So you have people in these cities. And that said, 
beginning in December. So this wasn't necessarily under the Trump administration. It was under the Obama administration. Uh, there were some loosening up of processes, allowing field commanders in the field to call in airstrikes without having to go through the usual process of getting Washington and the White House to sign. And that's the sort of thing that you kind of have to have if you're in an intensified war period because you can't, you know, you can't have people calling in airstrikes and then you go back to uh, Washington and take five, you know, committee meetings and that sort of thing because things are happening too fast. And the commanders, the American commanders on the mm-hmm. ground say that they need to have the leeway to be able to call in stuff quickly right. and respond quickly. Helene, it's it's been fascinating and challenging to square what the message was that this president ran on with this military action. And it feels complicated. And I wonder, as somebody who is talking to all of the people involved in this, if you've been able to, to square this stuff so far, to reconcile the message with these actions. I can't. Um, I can't reconcile what President Trump ran on with these actions because he didn't run as an interventionist. He ran away from that during the campaign. Uh, the military people I talk to right now are very happy because they're more in charge now. They've been given much right. more leeway. And I certainly feel like I understand what their mission is uh, as to President Trump. No, but I think that's largely because uh, what he says changes every week. Helene, thank you. I know you got to run and write. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. We'll be right back. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped 1 million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more. Hey, here we are. And which Republican candidate has the best chance of winning the general election? Of the declared ones right now, Donald Trump. (laughs) Most conservatives did not know how to account for the candidacy of Donald Trump. His election seemed impossibly at odds with the movement's values and its history. In fact, historians of conservatism, who thought they understood where it came from and where it was headed, have been proven wrong by Trump's election. Rick, I'm really glad to have you on and to meet you. It's a pleasure. Rick Perlstein is one of those historians, and he's written a kind of mea culpa for The New York Times Magazine. So, Rick, when historians like you tell the story of American conservatism, what's the story that you told before November 8th? Well, it's a pretty respectable story. Before World War II, the right in America was uh, almost completely marginal. Let me assert my firm belief. It had been subsumed by the New Deal. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You know, the fact that Dwight D. Eisenhower basically accepted the New Deal as a fundamental part of the American social contract. Mm -hmm. The air rings with the song of our industry. Rolling mills and blast furnaces, dynamos. Dams and assembly lines, the chorus of America the Bountiful. But that kind of following World War II... The conservative position is that the most progress has been made in history under conservative philosophy. 
mostly intellectuals kind of got together and hashed out their differences. There again, is it a conceptual difference that uh, between the person who desires a life under some kind of freedom and one who desires life under some kind of who, who, uh, under communism? And created a movement largely centering around William F. Buckley and his new magazine, National Review. There is an observable distinction by intelligent men between a country uh, that reaches out and interferes with the affairs of another country uh, because it has reason to believe that a failure to do so will result in universal misery, and that country which reaches out and interferes with another country because it wants to establish Coca-Cola plants there and chase national banks. And as Buckley himself understood what his magazine was up to, Uh, in defining conservatism, it was to articulate a position, and this is quoting Buckley, on world affairs, which a conservative candidate can adhere to without fear of intellectual embarrassment or political surrealism. And what did that mean? Basically, that meant that there was a sense that there were some very ugly currents in the reactionary politics of the past, and that they were going to create a modern conservative movement, which would kind of purge those ugly elements and create an ideology that kind of people could respectively carry forth to the nation uh, in an idealistic way. And I wrote my first book on the history of conservatism in 2001 and really put at the foreground of my book uh, something that conservatives themselves foregrounded, which was that this circle around National Review and around Barry Goldwater had purged the elements of conservatism that were, again, as William F. Buckley put it, intellectual embarrassments. You know, William F. Buckley kicked the John Birch Society out of the National Review. Remind me what the John Birch Society is. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the John Birch Society? So there were these conspiratorial group of uh, anti-communists. We do all that we can to bring to our fellow citizens more knowledge and a better understanding of the methods, the progress, and the menace of the communist machine. Their leader, uh, Robert Welch, most famously believed that uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower was a conscious agent of the communist conspiracy. Mm-hmm. You know, they purged uh, people who wrote for a magazine called The American Mercury, which was quite explicitly anti-Semitic. Uh, later on, they purged the followers of Ayn Rand. I hold that if man wants to live on Earth, that his highest moral purpose is the achievement of his own happiness. You know, the objectivist philosopher who disdained religion, you know, they were basically, uh, you know, I describe um, William F. Buckley as kind of the conservative movement's pope. He was always kind of excommunicating embarrassments. Hmm. And that was a very important part of my story. And by putting uh, Barry Goldwater at the center, he's a very honorable figure in in many ways. uh, To take the most distinct example... Uh, When he won the Republican nomination, that was in July of 1964. The good Lord raised this mighty republic to be a home for the brave and to flourish as the land of the free. Not to stagnate in the swampland of collectivism, not to cringe before the bullying of communism. And very soon afterwards, like within days, uh, riots broke out in Harlem, Hmm. race riots, you know, after a cop shot a kid, you know, very similar to what we see now in places like Ferguson. And Barry Goldwater literally went to the White House and told Lyndon Johnson that if his supporters started saying you should vote for Barry Goldwater, basically, so we can get back at these rioters or kind of exploited racial resentment in any way, he would withdraw from the race in the interests of unity. 
So he was a very idealistic guy. He almost set up this identity for conservatives as people who would hold to a point of principle even at the expense of achieving political power. Certainly simple honesty is not too much to demand of men in government. We find it in most. Republicans demand it from everyone. Is that what it seemed to mean to be a Republican candidate for president? Well, of course, it's a complicated story, but a really good example of what a Republican candidate seemed to need to do Mm -hmm. in order to be taken seriously kind of by the establishment was uh, to denounce, at the very least, crazy conspiracy theorists that were being indulged on their side. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Mitt Romney uh, made what we might call a dog whistle, a reference to the conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. You know, he gave a speech. Now, I love being home in this place where Ann and I were raised, where both of us were born. Talking about how wonderful his upbringing was in Michigan and said, No one's ever asked to see my birth certificate. They know that this is the place that we were born and raised. And immediately afterwards, as kind of the establishment commentators jumped down his throat, you know, oh, you're indulging this crazy racist conspiracy theory. And he backpedaled furiously. This is, of course, a very stark difference with Donald Trump. His grandmother in Kenya said he was born in Kenya and she was there and witnessed the birth. Okay. Who was one of the most prominent vectors for the uh, Obama was not born in the United Mm -hmm. States conspiracy theory. He doesn't have a birth certificate or he hasn't shown it. He has what's called a certificate of live birth. That is something that's easy to get. All right. Well, with that in mind, Donald Trump becomes the Republican nominee for president. Mm-hmm. And the assumption, of course, given our understanding of history, mm-hmm. including your own, the ones you've written, mm-hmm. is that this man can never be elected president. Well, one of the things that one would have assumed from this narrative is that the conservative establishment would have rejected him as uh, William F. Buckley rejected the conspiracy theorists of the 1960s. But, you know, a lot of the people who seem to be part of the high church of conservatism seem to have no problem with that sort of thing. And uh, that's not something the history of conservatism, as most academics understood it, would have been predicted. So what was wrong with the story that historians like you were telling? When you write history, uh, periodization, that's a you know fancy word that means, you know, kind of when you start your story and when you finish it, is very important. And this whole idea that conservatism was, you know, a post-World War II phenomenon that kind of gained steam in the 50s mm-hmm. through National Review in the 60s through, uh, you know, the campaign of Barry Goldwater doesn't really make as much sense when you realize that so much of the kind of conservatism or, or you might say reaction uh, that Donald Trump expresses has a lot more similarity to what we saw in a time like the 1920s. When, for example, the Ku Klux Klan had millions of members all around the United States, you know, practically ran the state of Indiana. Our forefathers walked barefooted in the snow and fought and died to give us freedom. And now here we sit back because we got a dictator in the White House, a dictator, and you sitting your money down out of bed and ain't willing to stand up and be counted like a man. Time for platitudes and flowery phrases is past. It's time to rip off the mask of pretense and hypocrisy and say what we mean and to mean what we say. 
You know, and one of the things that was going on uh, during that period that is, you know, so resonant was in 1924, the United States basically shut down immigration from the rest of the world. And it stayed shut down until uh, the immigration law of 1965. You're happy with the communists and the Negro running affairs of your country, then I'll say you sit back down on your tail and let them run it because that's what you want. A historian named Jefferson Cowie argues that why America was able to kind of create this sort of liberal state in the 1930s, 1940s, and even through the 1950s was precisely because America had been a whiter nation and people were a lot less reluctant to vote against big government social benefits when they knew those benefits were not going to go to minorities. And uh, of course, Donald Trump comes straight out of that kind of nativist tradition. I want to talk about how we explain Trump himself, not just his election. Mm -hmm. Politically, he doesn't fit neatly into the conservative movement. But is he a product of the conservatism in America that you're outlining here? Well, I think one important point to understand is that when Trump decided he wanted to have a political career, when he started thinking about running for president, one of the things he had his assistants do was monitor right-wing talk radio. Let's um, go to WABC on the flood of illegal aliens that Obama's herding into America in a stampede. You know, people like Michael Savage, people like Rush Limbaugh. Okay, folks, let's recap. After the vapid Yes We Can slogan wore thin, the Messiah, Lord Barack Obama, the most merciful, began running down America in earnest. So he could kind of formulate a discourse that would be palatable to the listeners of right-wing talk radio. Chris on WABC, fire away, you're on the Savage Nation. Yes, I think that we should allow the immigrants to come in. Since I was a young boy in uh, grade school, I was taught, give us your tired, your hungry, your poor. Isn't that what the Statue of Liberty stood for? Take well, you were taught in grade school. It's time for you to grow up. You're no longer in grade school. How many of the hungry, tired, and poor can we support? So in a sense, all he's doing as a politician is giving back to conservative audiences what he had been getting from conservative audiences. So you can't really separate himself from conservatism when he derived his very political rhetoric from the organs of conservative opinion, you know, like people like Rush Limbaugh. So it's very hard to separate himself in, th in, in that sense. Rick, you've talked about the idea of smart, well-intentioned historians making mm -hmm. a mistake. Let's put you in that category for a minute. Why do you sure. think you made those mistakes in telling the history of conservatism before Donald Trump? Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's two levels to that question. One is, you know, it's not necessarily a mistake. We were just explaining something different, mm -hmm. right? Historians are, are trained not to be presentist, right? We're supposed to take the past on our, its own terms. But at the same time, the questions we asked are constrained by the present. But another reason, you know, a lot of historians are, in fact, liberal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things liberals like to do is, you know, bend over backwards to be fair. You know, there's an old joke, you know, what's a liberal? It's someone who won't even take his own side in an argument. <laughs> and a lot of scholars adhere to the social science ideal of objectivity is one way of putting it, but kind of being fair to your subjects. You know, you don't want to be seen as criticizing the people you're studying. You want to understand them on, on their own terms. And that's a very honorable goal. And it's something we shouldn't retreat from. But at the same time, it's caused a lot of historians to write about conservatism in a way that is quite bloodless, 
right? Mm. It, 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 it writes the kind of melodrama out of the story, that sort of hysteria out of the story, and end up with mm. a, a kind of a bland stew that just doesn't ca- capture the character, the flavor, the emotional tone of conservatism that's, again, become so familiar to us uh, in the era of Donald Trump. When you described liberal historians, Rick, are you describing mm-hmm. yourself? You know, I definitely consider myself a liberal historian, and I definitely think I was uh, guilty of indulging this kind of, uh, you know, kind of privileging the way historians wish to see their own uh, story told. But certainly with my work on Goldwater, uh, I think I would have done things a little differently. Uh, I wouldn't talk about the Goldwater National Review people vanquishing the kind of conspiratorial thinking of the John Burt Society, but much more of them kind of existing side by side in a certain kind of tension. Uh, and that in some eras, uh, the kind of crazy conspiratorialism uh, and violent rhetorical energies and literal violence come to the fore. And sometimes that sort of respectability comes to the fore. And so now you need to go back, it seems, and account for this other force whose power mm-hmm. historians like you had either downplayed or maybe didn't quite understand. That's about it. Sure. And, you know, historians are always doing that. You know, every history is a revision of the histories that come before. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why we keep on writing books about the Civil War. You know, we've been doing it for, you know, 150 years and we're going to keep on doing it. And if the story of conservatism ends with Trump, you know, maybe we have to consider we were telling the story wrong in the first place. Well, I was feeling low down and blue. I didn't know what in the world I was going to do. Them communists, they were coming around. They were in the air. They were all over the ground. They wouldn't give me no peace. The reexamination of conservatism continues. Since its publication, Rick Perlstein's essay has inspired some critical responses from influential conservative publications, including the National Review. Off down the road. Oh, boy. I'm a real John Bircher now. Look out, you commies. Here's what else you need to know today. You have it as an abortion clinic. Now, that's actually a fairly small part of what they do, but it's a brutal part, and I'm totally against it, and I wouldn't do that. They also, however, serve as women. Despite praising Planned Parenthood during the campaign. A lot of women are helped, so we have to look at the positives also for Planned Parenthood. President Trump signed legislation on Thursday that would allow states to cut off federal funding for the group and other organizations that perform abortions, a reversal of a measure signed by President Obama in the final days of his presidency to protect that funding. And as long as they make a splash, they care nothing about the lives they put at risk or the damage they cause to national security. In his first major public appearance as director of the CIA, Mike Pompeo said that WikiLeaks, which has published internal U.S. military documents and emails from the Democratic National Committee, is a threat to the United States national security. It's time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. The speech comes months after Pompeo's boss, President Trump, praised WikiLeaks during the campaign for exposing emails about his rival, Hillary Clinton. Boy, I love reading those WikiLeaks, Trump said. The Daily is produced by Theo Balcom, Andy Mills, and Lisa Tobin. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. Special thanks to Rachel Quester, Samantha Hennig, Pedro Rosado, Michaela Bouchard, and Peter Sale. 
If you want more of the daily in your life, you can sign up to receive a text from me about the news of the day and this show by texting the word daily to the number 63937. That's 63937. That's it for the daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you Monday. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.